Every subject is spoken to by God, either directly or indirectly in the Bible. There are either very specific things like thou shalt not steal, uh, or by implication there are the particulars, thou shalt not steal your neighbor's car, or you know you should marry a, a believer, but it doesn't tell you which believer. So there, the particulars are not all there, but the principles are, and our job is to discover what God thinks about any particular subject. We call that theology, the study of God or the study of what God thinks. And so there is a theology of everything. And our task, our job is to discover that and to have those theological foundations in place as we take up any given subject. And so if we are to have any hope of successfully raising children, we will also have to lay the theological foundation for the family. It's the family that provides the environment and the system which produces not only children, but eventually adults, the adults that will go out and establish new households and new families and and repeat the process. Since the days of Adam and Eve, we've been filling the earth with offspring But the question is, what kind of offspring? Procreation is the easy part. Uh, Dogs and cats and rats can do that without any problem. Raising those children that we produce is the difficult part. In most cases, new babies are cute. Notice I didn't say in all cases, but your baby is always cute, of course. And it's exciting to have a new baby, and they fill us with joy and expectations. And um, we send out birth announcements about these little images of God, these little broken images of God that are placed in our care to raise up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so, God created marriage. He created the family. And this is going to be the place where he is going to then, in the normal circumstances, place children. Marriage and family were designed to be an extension of the triune God's eternal loving communion. And the purpose of marriage and the family was to extend his loving communion throughout the earth, to fill the earth with the glory of God. And so man and woman were made and they were called to exercise dominion, that is, they were called to rule over the earth, to be the kings and the, the king and the queen. And so, they were first to use their minds to order the world. We see Adam naming the animals, for example. We see him tending the garden. We see Eve given to Adam to assist him in all those tasks. They're both commanded to be fruitful and fill the earth. And so they have this call, and they're using their minds... They're thinking, if you will, to conform to the thinking of God and to bring this dominion uh, to bear under and to bring it to the glory of God. Now, in addition to that, there was also the other gift that God gave them was their sexuality. They were male and female. That's how he created mankind. And they were to become one flesh. They were to be fruitful and multiply, and the end fill the earth with more God-glorifying beings, ever-expanding 
this communion of love. That's the original plan. God's mandate called for both quantity and quality. Under the direction and protection of God's covenant, paradise would grow more and more, expand. God's true and everlasting word provided the foundation for families to flourish. And since it also set boundaries, it defined the roles in the family, it also identifies the goals of the family. Of course, a lack of faith led to disobedience. In other words, Adam and Eve did not believe what God said about what to do and what not to do. And that lack of faith led to their actual disobedience or sin. And that wrecked all of this. The gospel, because it deals with sin, sin is the problem, that's what wrecked the plan. The gospel, which deals with sin, is the remedy. It's what restores paradise. You say, well, I don't see much paradise. And I say it's because we also don't see much gospel. If there's a lot of gospel at your house, and by gospel I mean everything in the Bible, that is the good news, everything, because everything's about Christ, and the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, So every area of life is encompassed by the gospel. And so if we don't see a lot of gospel at your house, um, then we'll see one thing. But if we do see a lot of gospel at your house, then I suspect, in fact I know, there will be a fair amount of paradise there. The family can either be the worst place or the best place on earth. Now, marriage. Great parenting begins with a great marriage. And a great marriage also begins with the gospel. It begins with a sacrificing husband who, like Christ, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, men, you represent Jesus, and like the church, uh, and as the church is to him, so too is your wife to you. Wives, you represent the church, and like the church is to Jesus, you are to honor and respect him. And then children are a gift from the Lord to parents. They're his children. He said he, wanted, he made a husband and wife one. Why? In order to give him offspring. So we give him offspring, and we'll talk about how this works. There's a sense in which we give children to him and another sense in which he gives children to us. So, for example, when a child is brought for baptism, in effect, what we have there is the minister representing Christ receives that child as the the church receives that child. Christ receives that child. That child is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He receives the name of the triune God. And then the minister representing Christ hands that child back to those parents and says, now take this child home and raise this child to the glory of God. Of course, if you're going to train your children to be godly men and women, then you will have to be godly. A husband and a wife that love God and love each other. In fact, There isn't anything greater than that 
that you could give your children. Living in the context of other Christian people, that is, in the church, armed with the Bible and prayer, that is all you need to raise godly children. A husband and wife that love God, that love each other, that live in a covenant community, armed with, the prayer, with prayer and the Bible, is all you need to raise godly children. I told you it was simple, right? But I also mentioned that it wasn't easy. For starters, some of you women probably want to say, well, my husband ain't Jesus. You ought to have to live with him. And I'm sure you husbands, many of you, could add your own rejoinder. And some of you are single parents. In other words, we're broken. The system is broken. And that's why we need to listen to God. That's why we need to do what he says to do to begin to fix it. Knowing and inculcating God's Word is central. Now, I'm going to read a passage that I suspect almost all of you have heard and heard it many times, but I'm going to read it again because it is really one of the key passages and central passages, but like so many things that are familiar to us, it can grow, it can kind of go in one ear and out the other. It's from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Now, this is the commandment. Now, everybody knows what a commandment is, right? It's not a suggestion. God is commanding his people, that would be you and me, to do something. Actually, a number of things. This is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God and keep all his statutes and commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. It's interesting because in the in the, uh, in the commandment that, that children are to honor and obey their parents, why? There's a reason given so that they may live long in the land. Now, if that's true for children obeying their parents, here we have it. It says to every Christian, if you'll obey God, you too will live long, that you, your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it. We might say diligent to observe it. Great care. Remember, this. you, you can't have a, uh, so often as we do in our lives, something goes wrong, and it, it went wrong because we weren't listening to God, and we weren't observing what he said, and we weren't careful to obey him, and then things go poorly, and the first thing we say is, I didn't mean to. But this says we have to mean not to. That's a difference. So carelessness is not, an excuse. I wasn't trying to mess up. I wasn't trying to spill my milk. No, but you've got to make sure you don't spill your milk. You've got to move the glass. I say that, and I'm going to knock this cup over here on this table. You've got to move it back from the edge. You have to make sure you don't do this. He said, be careful to observe all these commandments, statutes, and judgments, that it may be well with you, 
and that you might and may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of blessing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God. This is the core of the Bible. I mean, if you could summarize the gospel, which Jesus does, what are the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. So this text, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You, you, husband and wife, father and mother, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with every ounce of your strength. That's the standard. And these words which I command you today shall be where? In your heart, not just your head, in your heart. You shall teach them how? Diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. In other words, God's Word permeates every single corner, every nook and cranny of your house. That doesn't mean you're walking around quoting Bible verses all the time, but it means that you are quoting Bible verses frequently or turning to the Bible and you're reading the Bible, but you're also implementing the Bible. You're forgiving one another. You're, you're honoring God. You're working on your attitudes. You're loving one another. You're serving one another. You're doing all the things God's Word says to do everywhere in your house. It's on the front door, the front gate, the bedroom, the living room, the kitchen, everywhere. It's there when you sit down and rise up. It's all the time, everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Now, I want us to pause for a moment and consider. When you hear this, do you tune this out because you've heard the passage so many times? Or did you tune this in and take it to heart? Because here's a point I want to make. I am not aware of any homes where this is actually practiced in any significant way where there are significant problems with the child rearing. I am not aware of any homes where this is consistently practiced where there are significant, there are problems, there are sinners, you're a sinner, they're a sinner, there are failures, but there are also remedies for the failures. But if this is the fundamental description of your house, then you're not going to have significant problems. This summarizes in 236 words all that you need to know to be successful. Seriously might be worth memorizing. Maybe make a copy and post it over the door. Now, what is the mission of the household? The aerial view, let's take, of the household, the ideal household. Husbands, as the covenant heads, are responsible to carry out God's plan for the household, that is, to accomplish this mission. 
That mission includes affection, sacrifice, provision, protection, instruction, discipline, and anything else that, is, that will ultimately produce a godly household and godly children. In other words, husbands, fathers, you're responsible for all of it. The word husband provides an agrarian image. We speak of animal husbandry or the husbandman of a vineyard. In Proverbs 24, 30 through 34, we have a picture of what happens when such a husband neglects his responsibilities. Let's just put it in the terms we're talking about here. When a father or a husband neglects his wife or children, neglect here is all it takes. Just not doing what you're supposed to do. Not, this is, we're not even talking about a open, an openly hostile or aggressive kind of husband or father who is doing positive damage. This is just a passive, lazy, uh, careless kind of husband and father. I went by the field of of the lazy man. We could say, I went by the home of a lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. What's that stone wall there for? It's to protect the vineyard keep outside things from coming in to destroy it. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, so shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. All you have to do is nothing. And the forces of sin and the fall and... Broken hearts, broken people will flow downhill fast. The wife is called to operate in submission to her husband. Why? Because he has a mission and she is in submission. She comes under that mission. That's what submission is. So we have two people. We have the the head, the one in charge of the mission, and then we have someone who's there to help accomplish that same mission, so they're together. They're, they're on the same mission. Her submission is to help him accomplish the mission. The two should work in harmony to the glory of God. As the prophet Malachi said, referring to husbands and wives, but did he not make them one, that is referring to Jehovah, having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Redeemed covenant households, Christian households, uh, that is the place where when it comes to the various family relationships of husband, father, wife, mother, and children, God's word is the defining standard. That, that's what we're called to. He sets the terms of the family relationships, and in fact, he establishes the hierarchy. The father pledges himself to diligently study God's Word and to diligently teach his household. Diligently. There's that annoying word. Not just haphazardly, not occasionally, not, well, we did it twice last week, but the rest of the week we got busy. You should be busy, but you should be busy with this. 
This is the priority. This is why you exist. This is why you're here. All the other stuff, the job, the sports, the entertainment, the meals, the laundry, all of that is there to serve this, not the other way around. This is not a footnote. This is not if we can get to it. It would be nice. This is if we don't get to it, then we're going to fail. Everything else serves this. The Father, uh, he sets out to purposefully know and apply God's covenant terms to his household, reaping the full blessings of that covenant relationship with God, a man who walks with God, and his family. Now remember, I said I'm painting this picture of the ideal family. I know that every one of you, I know that I fall short here. We're in a process. We're growing. We're we're learning, we're maturing. That's why we're in this class. But I need to know where it is we're going and what the goal is and what the standard is and what the objectives are. The degree, each mem- to, the degree to which each member of the family is instructed and conforms to the teaching of God's Word as it is given to the household, then God's gracious blessings can be expected, even the blessing of salvation. These promised household blessings for covenant-keeping families extend beyond the immediate family. It's not just you and your family that's at stake here. Psalm 103, 17 and 18, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His covenant, and to those who remember to do his, keep His commandments to do them. So it's not just you and your children, it's your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and on down the line. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who keep His commandments. Now we've gone past great-great-grandchildren. I don't know how many great, I guess that's a thousand greats. We haven't had a thousand generations yet of humanity. Psalm 105, 8, he remembers his covenant forever. By the way, let me back up on that. If, if certainly that thousand is indicating a big number. But, but if we think, if, if for a moment we thought about that literally, and we said we haven't even had a thousand generations. In fact, we're not even close. Then that says what you're doing right now has impact way, way, way out into the future. So that's the point here, is it's not just about today. Psalm 105, 8, he remembers his covenant, how long? Forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. Are you benefiting from Abraham's faith? Yes, you're a child of Abraham. Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them. The faithful covenant household in the context of the church is God's primary means of bringing redemption into full bloom. Don't you want the whole thing? Don't you want the whole blessing of salvation and redemption? Our children are the link between us and the next thousand generations 
The covenant household, then, is an institution of redemption. Now, hierarchy, that is somebody being in charge of somebody else or above somebody else in position, is an inescapable concept. It's going to happen whether we name it or don't name it or identify it or don't identify it. You put uh, two people in a room or 50 people in a room, there will be, over time, usually not a lot of time, some kind of a hierarchy emerge. Maybe it's the force of personality. Maybe somebody's older or younger. Uh, there's all kinds of things that might impact that. But in every system, somebody is going to be in charge. It can either be a system that is defined by identifiable positions and the persons who are in those positions, or else it will be defined in an ad hoc manner, which will emerge as the result of a power struggle that we're going to see here in terms of parents and children. The question here, here is, who's in charge? And if that's not clear in your head, and if you're not constantly making it clear in the head of your children, then you're engaged in a power struggle. Your family is a system, and somebody is in charge. And the only question is, who? Is it God? Is it husband, father, wife, mother, and children? Or does it change in any given moment? Depends on what's going on. Depends on who's yelling the loudest, stomping their foot the most, who's applying the most pressure. That's how we decide who's in charge. Or does God decide who's in charge, and you, you submit to what God says? The primary duty, in fact, I would say, it's, there's only one command in the Bible to children, and it has kind of two parts of the same idea. Children, honor and obey your parents. Respect and obey. One is the attitude of the heart, and the other is the outworking of that, and that is obedience. Honor and obey, two sides of the same coin. So Ephesians 6.1 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. That is your job. Period. End of sentence. That's all you have to do. It's simple. Notice the promise and the reason that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Obedience to parents results in blessings to children. Let every soul be in sub, uh, Romans 13:12, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Disobedient children are going to live miserable lives. If they have Christian parents who are trying to instruct them in the Word of God and love them and care for them, and they resist that, they are going to be unhappy. And if you as a parent, because you're weak and unwilling to do what God says to do, to insist that they follow God, both in their heart and their behavior, then you are assisting in their misery. Some of you might be old enough to remember there was a series of Fram oil uh, filter commercials, and the slogan was, pay me now or pay me later. 
You can either buy the oil filter and change your oil and keep your oil clean, or later when the engine blows, you can pay me then. Which one? Child rearing's a lot that way. Okay? Tuesday's hard. The three year old's having fits six times today, and I'm worn out. You know what? You can pay me now, or you can pay me later. Because I can assure you, whatever fit your three year old had, or however many they had on Tuesday, is nothing compared to the fit they're going to have when they're 18 if you haven't gotten control of that. Children are to obey their parents, not simply because their parents said so, but because God said so. They must obey parents that are not so bright. And what child does not think he knows more than his parents at some point? They must obey parents even when they don't understand why. They must obey their parents even when their parents have sinned and failed, for example, losing their temper, or perhaps not obeying God themselves. I never get a pass. I never get to sin because somebody else sinned. The sins of the, of the parents do not excuse the sins of the child, and vice versa. Honor involves more than outward obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. But in Matthew 15, 8, we read, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 2 Timothy 3, 5, the Bible speaks of those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. We are to honor parents not because they're necessarily respectable, but because they're our parents. Note. Perhaps some parents are finding it difficult to have their children honor them because they don't honor their own parents or other authorities. They're running their mouth at home about teachers and and the church and everybody anybody else in authority. They've got a complaint all the time. And their children hear that and their children learn, oh, well, that's how you deal with authority that you don't like. The primary duty, listen carefully when I say primary, primary duty of the parent is to rule, to oversee, to be in charge. God put you in charge, now be in charge. You're the boss. Our children are not our peers, they are not our buddies, and therefore we must avoid peer friendship. They are not our equals. If parents don't understand the nature of the parent-child relationship, then how could we possibly expect children to know the difference? As Abraham was a friend of God, yet he was not God's peer, so too parents are their children's friends, but that is not a peer friendship. Christian parents are God's appointed representatives to speak to their children. Therefore, it's primarily God's Word that we are to speak to them, directly and indirectly. And uh, as we've seen in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, it tells us that the Word of God is to be ubiquitous. It's to uh, exist everywhere, especially, uh, really, at the, all at the same time. It's to be omnipresent, would be another way we could say that. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Remember, you're God's representatives to your children. What they know and think of God 
they will learn from you. And while they might not always listen, they are always watching. God has delegated much authority to parents, and it must be taken seriously. If you take it seriously, so will your children. You know what, your children, actually starting with little children, they pretty much believe what you believe because you told them. You know why they love you? Because you love them. You know why they say I love you? Because you said I love you. And you taught them to say I love you. That's why God gave children parents, is to teach them what to think and how to feel and how to reply and how to respond. They're, they're sinful, which means they're selfish, and your job is to get them to be grown-ups and to stop being selfish. That's your job. Let me say it again. What is my fundamental job here? They're sinful, which means they're selfish, and your job is to get them to be grown-ups and to stop being selfish. The world does not revolve around them. This means, of course, here's the hard part, you have to be a grown-up first, which means you have to do some things you don't want to do. Then make them do some things they don't want to do. And then both of you should get happy about doing the things you don't want to do, but that you need to do. That's good for you. Both of you are here to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You're the boss of them, and that's a good thing. Determine what God requires and then lovingly insist on it being done. Determine what God requires and then lovingly insist on it being done. You're not trying to talk them into it. You're not trying to sugarcoat everything. You should be kind and gracious most of the time, but there is a time. You know, God, God has wrath. God gets angry. God chastens us because, what? He loves us. And so there's a time and a place to say, Pick that up, please. And then when they don't, you say, I said, pick that up, and I mean pick it up right now. Is that unloving? No. That's holy insistence. I'm the boss, and you're not. God's the boss of me, and I'm not. And so when I teach them that, I'm loving them because that's a critical lesson they have to learn. We saw an example of this yesterday at Five Guys Burger Burger in uh, Lufkin. Marinelle and I went there. A little boy, you know, they have those little boxes of peanuts you can get. And there's two little boys came in with their mom, and um, I'm guessing they were four and six or something like that. And the, the four-year-old mom was over getting her drink, and the four-year-old was sitting there with a, a little pack, a thing of peanuts at the table, and he was getting quite frustrated trying to shell the peanuts, and they weren't cooperating, so one wouldn't cooperate, and he'd toss it and try another one. And, um, and so um, uh, the peanuts weren't cooperating, and Marinelle began to refer to him as peanut boy. 
um, just to me, not to him. Uh, well, Peanut Boy uh, expressed his aggravation to his mother, who promptly and calmly escorted him to the restroom. And when they returned, um, Peanut Boy got to sit at a little table by himself next to Mom and his brother. And uh, so we were commenting on it, and, and we noticed that his attitude improved dramatically. Um, I walked over, had to walk over a good distance, and I just said, uh, I want to compl- I complimented Peanut Boy, but I didn't call him that to his mother. Um, <laughs> I said, I want to, we, we saw what you did in disciplining your son, and I want to thank you. Someday, he'll, he'll thank you. And she said, thank you. We're, uh, we're working on it. We're making some progress. Thank you for giving me that encouragement. Well, parental authority is delegated by God, and it is therefore governed by God. Parents may not be arbitrary in their rule, but must recognize that they themselves are under authority. They're under God. Parents do not have the authority, of course, to sin against their children. Uh, This obviously would prohibit all forms of abuse. And and nor may they require their children to sin. Authority involves two things. The power to make the rules, we would say doctrine to teach them what God requires. You make the rules. God made the rules for you. Now you're going to make them at whatever level you need to make them for, for the age of your children. The power to make the rules, and guess what? You also have the power to enforce the rules. Authority always involves the ability to enforce. In other words, it involves the ability to inflict some kind of penalty or pain. Try making a joke at the airport after you walk through security about the gun in your pocket and see what happens. You think they're going to think that's funny? You're not. Because they have the authority to enforce the rules. And therefore, what are you going to do? Does that change your behavior? (laughs) I believe it does. It It does mine. I'm not about to crack a joke about a gun in security at the airport. I don't want to spend the rest of my day in a back room or, some, or worse. So when you discipline your child, obviously you're being wise and measured and depending on what the offense, sometimes a word, sometimes a look, sometimes a, a, a thump, sometimes more. But whatever the disobedience is, the consequences for disobedience ought to be more painful than the benefit they thought they were going to get from the disobedience. Pretty simple. Avoid extremes of authoritarianism and sentimentalism. Godly authority is gentle in manner and resolute in purpose. It's godly. Godly authority is not tyrannical, but Christ, but like Christ, is a servant. But godly authority also loves the, love, loves the object of that authority and is willing to insist and enforce the right behavior. And... We'll say we're going to do a whole section on church, on, on, church, on child discipline and some methods, but uh, 
We'll, we'll get to that later. You should require obedience because it's what God requires of children and what he requires of you. So if you're letting your child disobey, then you're also disobeying God. This is what, uh, what is good for your children and will lead to their happiness and success, that they may live long in the land. Children do not, in the long run, resist authority that is selfless and kind and just. Now, children, you need to remember, are not innocent. They are immature sinners. Many people are excited, again, about having a baby, but the Bible tells us to take heed and care in what we do with them after they arrive. Moreover, we are not to despise our children, and that can be done in two ways. One is by neglect, and the other is by indulgence. That's why we call it spoiling a child. They stink. They're spoiled. Nobody wants to be around a spoiled child, one that's been indulged all the time. We should serve our children, but never cater to our children. God has given you children, and he gave you children to do something with them. He wants and expects you to raise godly children. This is your primary responsibility. So from the start, I will be calling on you to stop blaming others and stop excusing yourself and your children. If you love your children, you'll do whatever it takes within God's boundaries to turn them into adults, an adult that fears the Lord and one that is fruitful. Perhaps you simply need some instruction or some encouragement, or you might also need some rebuke or correction. Children are both a gift and a responsibility. This class, by the way, will not fix your child. If your child is broken or messed up, then you're the one that needs fixing. The only way your child's behavior or attitude is going to change is for you to change your behavior and attitude. Your children, I hate to tell you, are growing up to be just like you. Your children will get better when you get better, which means that you're going to have to take a long, hard, deep look at yourself in the light of God's Word and see what it says you're supposed to be doing and then get to work. Now, I want to close real quickly. I want to read a page here from Nate Wilson's book, Death by Living, that I think captures this thing about the place of children and parents. The truth is that a life well lived is always lived on a rising scale of uh, difficulty. As a little kid, I had a job, obey my mother. Don't lie. Play hard. Be kind to my sisters. At the time, that job was actually difficult. My mom kept saying things like, come here, and no jumping on the couch, or don't stand on the doorknob and swing on the door, and no hitting. But my sisters were there, and so were my fists. The couch was bouncy. Doors are cool things to swing on. Man, I was bad at my job. I remember the existential despair as I stood in the front yard of our duplex with my real yellow fiberglass bow with a real arrow on the string, but on the arrow tip, a tube sock with red stripes duct taped on tight. I still managed to shoot it over the fence. I remember kneeling on my top bunk and pounding nails into my wall in a long winding row that even crossed my Seattle Seahawks poster. 
Throughout my childhood, the second most common bad sound effect effect was most likely glass shattering, only occurring slightly less frequently than the yelping of a sister. But I was supposed to push the limits. That was my job at the time. I was supposed to live as fully as I could within the boundaries of the law. I transgressed often, but a balance between full-throttle living and obedience was found with much help from wooden kitchen spoons. I learned how a raw egg reacts beneath a hammer and how far I could throw a hatchet. Sure, I mounted toilet paper up in the toilet bowl and then lit it on fire, but at least I flushed. And just as I began to get good at my job, I got promoted. The law remained the same, but the number of ways in which it was possible to transgress radically increased. I was bigger, I was faster, I was at school. It's that way for all of us, but the promotions come regardless of whether or not we've actually improved. If you are bad at being two, you will be bad at being four. If you're bad at being four, you'll be bad at being six. Temptations increase. Potential falls multiply. We look at two-year-old at a two-year-old attempting to overthrow righteousness and establish evil in all the land, and we snicker. Lazy parents tell themselves that the wee little he or she will outgrow this little tendency of theirs. Yipes. Wrong. Buzzer. Gong. What they mean is that the child will grow into someone else's problem. Once they are at daycare... The struggle will be out of sight and will be dealt with by other struggling peers and or unrelated adults or not. The school years escalate in difficulty and multiply in temptation. Add sports and friends and, uh, and hormones and petty power struggles, structures. You can now sit in, a, in huge chunks of hurtling metal cars taking the lives of everyone in your passenger, uh, of your passengers and every passenger and every other passing chunk of metal and every passing pedestrian and every bicyclist in your irresponsible hands. You can now make mistakes that kill people and you. Off to college and mustachioed professors will pour nonsense all over you. You're ready, uh, uh, you are ready or you aren't. Peers wallow in every kind of debauch. You are, uh, you are ready or you aren't, and you can now, far more easily than in high school, ruin your life forever. You're now on your own, and then you aren't. Other real live souls are now depending on you. You are the creator of their childhoods. You are the influencer of their dreams and tastes and fears. You are the MC of all reality and one to the one to introduce those small people to the true personality of their maker as imagined by your life more than by your words. The choices you now make have lives riding on them always. Their problems and struggles are yours to help them resolve. Their weaknesses, yours to strengthen or not. Maybe they'll outgrow them. This X marks my spot. I am here for good and ill. 
I am a molder of childhoods, an instiller of instincts, a feeder or famisher of souls, a sense of humor. I am an image of God, stunted and vandalized, but all the earthly father my kids can have. Thank God for faith and bulk order grace. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us as children and that you give us children. Help us to take this seriously and joyfully and with great enthusiasm. Help us to grow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.